Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host. I'm Marianne, and I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. When I started researching New Zealand cryptids, my plan was to produce only one episode. I honestly was unaware of how many cryptids New Zealand had, apart from the Taniwha, that pretty much every single New Zealand has at least heard of in one capacity or another. So I was really shocked to discover how many we have, and I realised that one episode would not do them justice in the least. I also learned that some of our cryptids have much in common with many others worldwide. Throughout the world there are stories and legends of huge hairy ape-like creatures that have persisted over the centuries through retellings of cultural myths and legends and of actual reported sightings of such creatures. These beings go by many different names. In North America they are called Sasquatch or the more common name of Bigfoot. Across the ditch in Aussie they are called the Yawi. In parts of Asia and the Himalayas they are called the Yeti or the Mete. In Mongolia they are called the Elmas. In Sumatra the Orang Pendek. In China, the Urin, in the jungles of South America, they are called the Mapungori. On the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com, you can see a link to a page that has a huge list of names of this creature. So you can see that this being goes by many, many names throughout the world. What I did not know in my research and what really shocked me was that here in little old geographically isolated New Zealand, we have our very own version of the Bigfoot. Here he goes by numerous names dependent on where in the country he is located. Some of these names are The Moiho Man, Mauro, Mato, Tuhurangi, Tonga, Rapuai, and less commonly in the 1800s by the Europeans, the Maori Gorilla. Yet, this should really come as no surprise considering our beautiful country here was one of the last major land masses to be settled by humans. So in addition to its beautiful soaring mountains, our pristine beaches and rivers and our ecological diversity that has evolved in large part due to our remoteness and long isolation from the rest of the world, that there are still unexplored and many untamed regions in our beautiful islands that absolutely hold mystery and undiscovered life. So, why should it be any surprise that in hidden and well-isolated spots around New Zealand, we could find our moiho communities? Considering they are found throughout the world, why should we be any different? So I did dwell deeper into this subject and in my research I discovered a number of people in New Zealand who are actually actively researching this. I tried to approach them all to participate in this episode. One flatly refused to have anything to do with my show and was very curt. 
One whose emails kept bouncing back and another gentleman who I was delighted to find returned my emails and questions about his personal experiences with this creature. He also agreed to share his experiences with us all. He'll be coming up a little later in this episode, but first, a little history on this creature in New Zealand and the areas where these can be found. Let's begin our journey into this part of New Zealand's Shadowlands. Since the Māori arrived in New Zealand on their great canoes, they have been aware of the Moiho, and in fact would avoid many different regions of New Zealand, because they knew that those areas were the homes of these beings, and that not all of these beings were benevolent, that in fact there were some who would capture and kill the unwary warrior. The Māori that lived in the regions where these creatures were to be found lived in terror of them for the most part, and many of these legends have these moiho, these rapuai, attacking and killing any poor, unfortunate soul who happened to cross paths with them, unprovoked attacks, displays of threatening behaviour such as rock throwing or the uprooting and throwing of logs, and extremely loud vocalisations. These are commonalities in historical reports from the local Māori of the behaviour of this being. And, in fact, are commonalities reported even today. So the iwi, or tribes local to these specific areas, learned very quickly to stay away from the areas where they lurked. But the Europeans who colonised this country also had dealings with this cryptid as well, and there are a number of historical newspaper accounts. The area around New Zealand's Porter's Creek in the Mount Richmond Forest Park in the South Island of New Zealand became the scene for a bizarre series of sightings in the latter part of 1870. In these reported sightings, the creature was described as being some as some sort of gorilla-like creature. It was described as being around five foot tall, with sparse, scraggly hair covering its body, a tuft of hair on the top of the head, and with a pair of visible tusks sprouting from each side of the head or the mouth, depending on the report. This creature became known as the Maori gorilla. It was reported as being seen on both shores of the creek and also on occasion wading through the water. According to the reports published starting in September 1870 in the Thames Advisor, the creature was apparently well known to the, by the native Māori people who referred to it as tupuna or ancestor. The Māori gorilla was said to eat a wide variety of food, including potatoes, pie crusts and nuts. The newspapers at the time speculated that it could be the missing link or some form of primitive human ancestor and there was a great amount of interest expressed in tracking it down and capturing whatever it was. These sightings became frequently reported on in various newspapers at the time including the New Zealand Herald, the West Coast Times, the Auckland Star and the Thames Advisor. In late September of 1870, the Thames Advisor ran an article which was subsequently picked up by several other publications claiming that the creature had been caught in a swamp near Porter's Creek with the use of hunting dogs. The article claimed that the creature had been captured and then its hands and legs tied up. The paper's description of this being is very racially insensitive and to me extremely offensive, so I'm not going to read it out. After this report, the trail sort of goes cold and in fact the Thames advisor backtracks on its initial reporting of the story, so we're left wondering if, in fact, it was all a hoax. 
What does the Moiho man look like? There are many different descriptions of this creature and with some of the different names come slightly different descriptions. The Moiho has been described as terrible creatures, half man, half animal with a very aggressive temperament. They apparently were only too happy to massacre and eat anyone that strayed into their domain. As tall as man, but completely hair-covered with marginally ape-like facial features. The primary difference from the human appearance being the extremely long fingers tipped with sharp talons capable of tearing apart the toughest prey. The Tonga. These were greatly feared by the population of the lower Whanganui River, as they were said to viciously attack any fisherman who strayed into their territory. This vicious behaviour, however, seems to have abated in more modern encounters, as the beasts in most instances flee on sight of humans. However, they have been seen as lately as merely 25 years past, recounted in the witness's own words later on in this episode. She described him as being very tall, with black fur. The Rapawai these are believed from legend to be able to crush any strong Maori warrior with ease, employing their large powerful hands. They are said to be tall producing beasts using wood and stone. The articles crafted are said to resemble those produced by Homus erectus hominids. These are gigantic but slow clumsy beings with really strong muscular stature. The Mato. These are described as being ape-like but three metres tall. So basically, these different beings can be put into two categories. Those that are the statue of an ordinary human, such as the moiho, the maoro. Those that are extremely tall or of giant stature, being the mato, the tuhurangi, the rapuai and the taonga. So, where precisely in New Zealand are these cryptids reportedly found? They're found all over New Zealand, in fact, from the Coromandel region on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand, predominantly in the Moiho mountain range, from whence one of its names derives, but in fact all of the Coromandel ranges. They are also thought to inhabit both Mounts Tongariro and Ruapehu, and the Karangahaki Gorge, the Martha Mine region in Waihi, again on the east coast of the North Island, the Waikere Moana region in the Uruwera ranges, in the Hifi River of the northwest Nelson State Forest Park, the Kaikoura Mountains, Fiordland National Park. They are said to be very common in the Haas Pass area. I have trouble pronouncing that, sorry guys. Haas Pass area of the South Island, particularly around the Haas River. Also Lake Kokotipu in central Otago of the South Island, in the Marlborough District of the South Island and in the North Island again in the Lower Waikato River region and along the banks of the Whanganui River as evidenced by this experience witnessed by a member of my Walking the Shadowlands Facebook group. One of my members had an experience 25 years ago when her mother, her uncle and her all saw a moiho man on the banks of the Whanganui River. She has requested to remain anonymous, so I will not identify her, but this was her experience in her own words. I remember when I was about six, must have been about six or five, we went for a school trip. I went um, used to go to a little school that's down near Wanganui River, 
and when we for school trip on the riverboats to go and see the bridge to nowhere because it's pretty long walk in, inland so it's only half an hour walk from the river and at the time my uncle he was running um a business with the riverboats and so he took our school up there school's only about 10 kids and so it wasn't like you know thousands of kids trying to take them up a river well anyways we went up there and I don't know I just had this really eerie feeling like someone was watching me and I kept on saying to mum because mum came and I kept on saying to mum mum there's someone in the trees watching I can feel them I can't see them but I can feel them watching and mum's like oh don't be silly because you know, you don't want to scare your kids. You know, she totally believed me, though. I could see that she could believe me. I'm pretty sure she could feel it, too. And um, and I kept on saying to my uncle, I said, there's somebody in the trees watching. He goes, yeah, no, nah, don't worry about it. it. You know, it's fine. It's just in the trees. And, well, anyways, we went up to the Bridge to Nowhere, and it was fine when we got off the boat and went up and had a look at the Bridge to Nowhere. And it's really beautiful up there. I re- totally recommend going to have a look. And, um, and well, anyways, we were on our way up. We were back in, on the riverboat. And um, I could feel this thing watching and I could, like, see it sort of, like, running in the trees following the boats, following the boats down because we were going really slowly because it was in the middle of summertime and, and so the river was quite low, so the bottom of the boat was scraping along the rapids and so we are going really slowly to not punch a hole in the bottom of the boat. And, well, anyways... Um, I could see this this hairy gorilla looking thing running along and it was black and I don't know, I just felt really uncomfortable about it. Like I just didn't want to stop. We just we couldn't stop. And I kept on telling Uncle and I was holding on to him and squeezing him for dear life. I said to him, You can't stop this boat and we got a bit stuck on a rapid and I said, Don't stop, don't stop. I was freaking out. And anyways, this thing was standing there just looking at us and we got the boat going and it was just absolutely, truly terrifying. And my uncle saw it, my mother saw it. I don't know about anybody else. I don't think they saw it. But, um, yeah, it was only because I could see it and I noticed it and it was, I know, it just felt so freaky. I just, I didn't like it its energy I didn't like the way how it was running after us so, yeah it just felt like that was protecting something and it just really didn't want us to be there yeah it was really tall like oh like the tallest person who I know it's like six foot it was taller than them what I could see what I remember and I don't know I just remember him it had like black fur and I don't really remember much more. I don't. I don't really remember its face. I was just a little kid. I just remember just being just the feelings I had about it. That I was actually really terrified, and I didn't want it to come anywhere close to me. Here are some other reported sightings over the years. In 1882, a gold miner in the Coromandel Ranges in the North Island of New Zealand was found headless and his body partly devoured in the region. And a woman in the same area at around the same time had been kidnapped from her home. Her body was discovered later with her neck apparently twisted with great force, killing her. 
1903, some very large man-like footprints were found in the beautiful Karangahaki Gorge in the Coromandel region of the North Island of New Zealand. In 1969, an Australian tourist reported seeing the creature as she bushwalked in the region. She described it as being much like a gorilla. In 1970, a party of campers had to abandon their camp as a two-metre-tall man-beast assailed them screaming loudly and hurling rocks at the camp. In 1971, footprints were located on snow-covered ground and led into a zone of bush on a hillside found by a park ranger in the same area as the previous ones. In 1972, a hunter in the Coromandel Ranges watched a naked, hairy man-beast about two metres tall work its way through the scrub on the other side of a gully. Upon reaching the place the creature had been transversing, footprints were found. Again in 1972, another sighting was made by two pack hunters who said they saw a large creature approximately 150 metres away from them. When they reached the place where the animal had been, all they found were human-type footprints 35 centimetres long. In 1983, in the Hifi River that runs through the Kahurangi National Park in the South Island of New Zealand and is part of a famous New Zealand bushwalking track, more footprints were discovered by a hunter in the region. These footprints at that stage when they were discovered could have been no more than one hour old. In 1991, some very spooked campers who were roughing it in the Camera Mountains in the very remote Fiordland region of the South Island of New Zealand woke one morning to discover very massive man-like footprints scattered around their camp. This spooked them so badly, which would only be a natural reaction, that they all packed up and left the region immediately. An undated sighting was reported in the Sunday news newspaper, stating that an occupier of the Lake Mahinapua pub, which is located on the wild west coast of New Zealand's South Island, near the town of Hokitika, had been having his vegetable garden raided regularly. The offender was exposed when a man-beast was witnessed dashing to the protection of the bush with an armload of silver beet, which is a green leafy vegetable. And more recently, my guest Mark Capel has seen these footprints for himself, as well as having other audible evidence of the Moiho man. <laughs> Did you my rock?
Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to my listeners and I about your experiences. Can you please tell us how you came into this particular field? Okay, well, um, I have had a quite long life um, involved with very strange paranormal phenomena and started even from when I was a a young kid. Um, I would see these shadow, uh, shadow people and it scared the hell out of the dogs and strange things like this, I had uh, experiences with people who had passed on that I didn't know about and somehow was verified through somebody else in some other way. And uh, I actually went uh, over to America um, in my, my 20s. And I did some schooling over there. I uh, wrote a paper on near-death experiences when I was going to um, college over there. Of course, over there you do um, multiple subjects. Uh, before you get into a major area of study. And um, I, I spent uh, most of my time in America was mostly in Las Vegas. They call it Sin City. It's a very hot place. Uh, if anyone's been over there, it's like uh, the Australian desert in summertime, very hot. Now, um, I had some strange things happen when I was over there. Um, I was out prospecting in the southern Nevada desert in 2013, early in January, and uh, I um, d- discovered this this craft that flew right in front of me. In fact, I had this impression to pull over, and this part of, I nearly had an accident. I pulled over. I, I just went with this impression. I pulled over because I was prospecting, you know, and I had all my gear, my metal detector on, my bag, my bucket, all that kind of stuff. It's going up and down these rocky ravines, and right in front of me, I see this metallic oblong um, silent, some sort of craft that was completely silent, went straight in front of me and I just stopped and I stared and I knew I couldn't get my camera out fast enough because I had a camera in my, my back pocket of my bag. So I just stared at it and um, it went, it went along and went down. I was only up in the air for a few seconds and um, I was started panting, hyperventilating. I couldn't believe what I saw I mean, I'd seen, I've seen other weird stuff, but to see something in, you know, like one o'clock, I think it was like one o'clock in the afternoon, I can't remember, but it was broad daylight pretty much. And uh, so I, I raced over to the area where, where I thought it landed. I couldn't find it. So I don't know what happened to it, but then I was heading on the way out. Um, I noticed um, when my, par- my, my car was parked over on the side, um, there was another vehicle that was blocking the stony road. This is a remote desert area. It has some gold mining history to it, kind of like our, our Mohi man, some of the gold mining areas over there. But um, anyway, I get uh, get back to buy my car. I'm not quite there. But then I notice this other car pulls up um, to leave the area. And these two tall, strange individuals get out of the car, seemingly identically dressed, tan um, hats with the, the, the neck coverings. 
and they approached my, my parked car. I wasn't in my car. They couldn't see me. And they walked right up to the windows of my car and started looking in before they left. I thought that was a little pretty weird, you know, considering what I'd just seen. Anyway, I left and went to the local um, railroad casino because I was pretty freaked out. I was like, oh, man, I need to calm myself down. I, I mean, I've heard about UFOs, but to see one just like this. Yeah. And so I joined Las Vegas UFO Hunters soon after that. I mean, I had already uh, been involved in paranormal investigating before all this. And so to have a close encounter with UFO and possible other things on the ground, I, I can't say. I can't say yes or no if they were associated with whatever that was. So anyway, I would go out sky watching with the Las Vegas UFO Hunters, rub shoulders with them, trying to figure out, well, you know, what happened, what happened to me? What was that? I later went on to, um, during my research, I went over to uh, Skinwalker Ranch, Utah. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Skinwalker Ranch. Yes, I just did an episode on Skinwalkers, actually. Oh, Skinwalkers. Oh, yes. Yes, the, as they're known by the Navajo tribe. But uh, I had gone over to Skinwalker Ranch, which has a bevy of paranormal activity. In fact, the rancher and his wife and family, they were terrified after two years being on this ranch of seeing um, um, various UFO craft, cattle mutilations, things that look like Bigfoot. Their animals went missing. Some of their animals got mutilated. Some of the, 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 the animals just disappeared completely. And Robert Bigelow, Bellini, actually bought the property off this rancher to study it. Now, uh, Robert Bigelow is a aerospace entrepreneur. He has space stations circling the Earth. And so he conducted a serious scientific study with biologists and physicists, veterinarians, um, um, pretty much covering all the, the scientific uh, fields of study. He had his own PhD-level scientists that study what was going on. And they, indeed, some of the stuff, it happened to them. Um, it was always one step ahead of them, as reported by George Knapp, a CalS um, investigator reporter. And he wrote a book um, co-authored with Colm Callagher, uh, who was uh, one of the senior scientists uh, who was running this study. And uh, so it was a very interesting um, um, what went on there. But anyway, we had dogs hit upon us. Uh, we were by the front gate. It's uh, guarded, armed security. It, it has a infamous history not only with the people in the area many of the people have seen ufos sometimes daytime uh, sometimes in front of the school a lot of very strange things even the even the ute indians some of them i interviewed when i was over there uh, have seen a lot of strange things uh, they would tell their people just keep away from this property it has this this ridge of rock that goes around this 580 acre ranch Farm, as we call in New Zealand, we call them farms, not ranches. And uh, anyway, so I, I went with, with my, um, my paranormal investigation equipment. I had uh, infrared cameras. I had my SLR, my audio recorders, cameras, etc., etc. And um, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I don't know, you know, but a lot of people that do go there, they get something does happen. Quite commonly it happens. And sometimes some of these people are, are hard knows skeptics even they have stuff happen and they they leave they leave that place scarred and sometimes the phenomena will actually follow them as george knapp reports there's a piggyback effect associated with the phenomenon at that ranch now on the first night of investigating now 
it's very hard to get close to that property. It's a very large area. There's a lot of private properties around there. Um, I had these light anomalies that approached me very quickly and they came against the gale winds. They were, and they approached me and did a, a 90 degree turn straight in front of my face. I had my infrared point of view camera on. They lit up the side of my face. They moved incredibly fast. All I could see were these lights just approaching me and then they zip in front of my face. So fortunately I got at least one of those. I also caught very strange plasma formations as well. There was um, thunderstorms on the horizon. I don't know if that would have had anything to do with it, but the thunderstorms are pretty far, um, you know, pretty far away. Um, so that was the first night. Um, the second night got stranger. Now you can go there and you can expect one thing and get another. We were perched. Uh, I was with my girlfriend at the time up on UFO Hill. Um, as it's known by the locals uh, over by the, um, the lake, they call the Bottle Hollow Lake Reservoir. Um, even outside of this property, strange things have happened. Well, I was up there, uh, on, perched on this hill. It was completely dark. We did have a trooper, um, one of the troopers, um, the tribal troopers pull over and, and say, what's this car doing here? You didn't see me in the, the dark because I had my infrared cameras up on this hill. I had to very carefully approach them from the dark and say, I, um, I'm here. Don't shoot me. You know, just let know. Look, I'm, I'm doing a, I've just said I was sky watching. I didn't say I was there trying to get UFOs. Uh, I technically, I was on Ute uh, property. So anyway, he was nice. He was just checking on why the car was parked there in the darkness. And um, well, anyway, I was there with my girlfriend and we heard the strange animal cry out and it was a little bit freaky. I don't know what the heck it was. I'm not used to the wildlife up there in Utah. I mean, I did live in Utah for a little bit, but I was in a suburban area um, when I was over there as a, as a student and later on. But um, anyway, and then there was um, something that there was an explosion and at first I thought it was a battery pack that had gone off and I checked on my electronics. No, it was none of that. Well, when I had got over the footage, a rock had been thrown at us and had landed right by us. It was, must have been pretty heavy. It sounded like an explosion. I thought, well, maybe it's something from, you know, we had a power line that was nearby, just a, one of those residential ones that didn't carry much current. But uh, anyway, so uh, I assumed that that was some kind of Bigfoot kind of creature that did that because that is, if you know anything about Bigfoot, that's one of the things they do. They throw rocks yeah. and it's thought that maybe it's to scare people off. It could be to get your attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, so after that, uh, I put together my little uh, documentary called uh, Skinwalker Ranch Apocalypse Close Encounters. And I put this footage up there. Uh, you can see it free on YouTube, in fact. But so that sort of got me into this. Now, look, I, I didn't really have a proactive interest in Bigfoot until this experience. This was obviously the uh, North American Bigfoot or Sasquatch as it's known. I, uh, I had been in America a while. I wanted to come back to New Zealand. I returned to New Zealand in 2015. Now in 2015, I, um, I got back here to New Zealand. It was good to be back. I missed the ocean. I missed the greenery, the trees and you know, meat pies, fish and chips, all that kind of stuff. You know, I really missed a lot of, you know, two decades of, you know, being over there. But anyway, um, 
I thought, well, look, I'm going to do some hiking. I'm tramping back in New Zealand because I really miss the greenery and the wildlife of New Zealand and that. And um, anyway, I had done some paranormal work since I got back. I'd gone to some, a couple of cemeteries and I um, had conducted a um, one over in the Guardian building on Queen Street, Auckland City. Now, I used a, um, a Sanjian spirit box that was shielded with Faraday material to block out the radio signals. I just don't want to deal with false positives, that being radio signals. You know, I want only instrumental transcommunication or EVPs because that's what I'm after. Anyway, I got some strange transmissions that came through and some of the, the messages came through, repeated themselves. One of them came across, except the Bigfoot people, big people. And it repeated itself. And you listen to this. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of this recording, but this is, does not sound like a normal human. Very strange. So if you want to hear something that sounds like a Sasquatch uh, via uh, electronic means, then you can listen to my Guardian Street investigation um, video. And it has that on. It also has a sample of the a UFO, one of the UFOs flying, um, doing a mid-air flip, traveling at about Mark III over in the Coromandel. But, and I actually, on that video, have some of the, the sounds that I picked up there, some strange languages, sounds, uh, stone clacking, wood knocks, and other things. But anyway, um, later on, I decided, look, I had gone to some old historical gold mining areas in America, and I thought, well, I, I, I'm interested in seeing some of that here in New Zealand too, because I thought, well, it's, really beautiful scenery and I, I love nature. So I went out, I went out to this particular area. I had done some research about some of the historical areas in New Zealand, particularly outside of around Auckland and strange things started happening when I went out to this area. I started one, I started hearing uh, like a wood knock kind of sound. And there was another thing that happened was I started to get the feeling of being watched and alongside that, I would hear these bipedal footsteps in the bush. Now, this is an area that is not easy to get to. I have to use a machete to get out to. This is not known to the public. It is a nondescript area. I go there and um, uh, look, my interest perked. I didn't know what the heck was going on. And uh, over time, I, as I went back to the area, I got what, what they call samurai chatter where you hear something talking about, you can't really necessarily understand what it's saying. But, um, and I look, I said, look, I'm not here to harm anything. I come in all respects, you know, whatever you are. I, look, I know there's different kinds of beings out there. So I just said, look, I come in respect. Uh, you know, I didn't know, look, look why, why is this happening to me? I mean, I've had some very bizarre stuff happen. I did not expect this to happen to me in the New Zealand wilderness. I thought I was going to go and have a, you know, a great time exploring. You know, I, as a kid, look, I, I have never heard of Bigfoot in New Zealand. Mm. And it wasn't until I started researching. And, and not only this, I had these things walk up to me. I could not see them. And that, what, that was what really troubled me as well. I thought, well, it could be like kind of like a ghost-like phenomena that was going on. However, I, I had this feeling there was more activity in this ravine. It was a very steep ravine uh, that leads down to this particular area. It's very remote there's a lot of obnoxious plants that cut you when you go through. It's not one of those areas where you just go on a family picnic. It's like machete required, if you know what I mean, that kind of area. Well, anyhow, I went down to the Sylvania area. 
I've heard things follow me. I've had what was really bizarre is to find these footprints. I found these footprints in the mud and the gravel. There's a little stream that goes down through that area. And I found little structures as well. And I found little tiny footprints as well, right by the stream. And I thought, this is, this is bloody bizarre. I mean, who in their right mind would go out to this area? I mean, it's, it's really hard to get to. It's dangerous. It's slippery. Uh, it's, 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 it, it's, there's no tourist um, uh, part about it. There's, um, I guess you could have you know, kids that might you know, adventure, but it's a very hard place to get to. There's certain aspects to it that make it very well protected from outsiders. And that's why I suspect that they might be out there as well, is because it is a very well protected area. So, these footprints, I saw a photo of them on your website and it's quite a large print there, especially compared with your boot size. Yes, some of them are, I've got a size 11 boot uh, um, and they're bigger than my, my boot. Some, some of the footprints are smaller. I, I wish in the early days that I thought to take casting material out there because I had found juvenile prints out there as well. Right. Um, it's, it's so bizarre what's going on. Um, not only that, uh, I've discovered a whole bunch of trees that have been ripped down with brute force at low ground level. Um, I found strange symbols carved into tree trunks. There's a certain area where all this, what I call the epicenter of activity, where I believe they reside. And I don't know that, I don't know that it's necessary all flesh and blood. It's a very bizarre aspect to it that I, I suspect I'm, I'm getting something similar to Mike Patterson of Sasquatch Ontario. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's picked up some amazing uh, Sasquatch vocals. But I'm picking up chanting out there. I'm picking up strange languages. I'm getting the approaches. I also, because I do uh, instrumental transcommunication, or ITC is the abbreviation, the acronym, um, I get little bits of tidbits of information about what's going on. And they said they had ripped these trees down for me and made a pathway for me. They, they know us humans, we walk in pathways. We need roads. We need pathways. They don't. They can go straight up a slippery hill. I don't know how they do it without slipping down. This is very slippery ground. I have to go on all fours to go on some of this ground uh, where they're at. It's, it's so bizarre. I mean, I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm trying very hard to be skeptical and, and balanced. So I actually record everything now. I wear point of view cameras. I record the sound. I've had things approach me um, and vocalized to me. I've One of my videos called Sasquatch Interaction in New Zealand actually records a number of their, what they can do. Uh, one being the tree knocks. Two, you've got the um, bipedal approaches. Three, you've got... Um, the, the branch gets moved back and forth um, response to me um, for you hear the vocals this deep set of lungs they mimic me um, I go whoop 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 and you hear a fourth whoop that responds back to me this is not an echo this is an area that has a lot of trees it's not conducive to echoing and I've tried to rule out a lot of the stuff as I'm doing it because it's it sounds very bizarre and I know how, how it sounds to an outsider how I've had some very strange experiences in my life. So I don't know is this stuff is connected to some of this other phenomena. Um, there was a re researcher over in Pennsylvania by the name of Stan Gordon, um, who wrote some books 
on the subject of Bigfoot and UFOs. I suspect that what I'm dealing with has some kind of connection to UFOs. Uh, and you've seen that footage. Mm. Um, and, and I caught that footage in a very short amount of time. I would take a lie detector test over it. Um, there's no fakery. I, I mean, I am, I'm dead serious on this subject. I mean, I don't have the greatest health. So when I go out to that area, each time I go out there, I say to myself, what the heck am I doing here? I mean, I hurt like hell. My back hurt like hell when I'm trying to climb out of here. It's not, it's not, it's not a walk in the park, you know? <laughs> For listeners, the footage that Mark's referring to is some anomalous aerial activity that he caught in this region. And while it's not available to the general public at the moment, it will be included in one of his documentaries at some stage, I imagine. Is that correct, Mark? Correct, yes. The full footage will be made available. There is a number of anomalies doing impossible things. Mm. Um, the, uh, there is a little portion of it that is available to the public on the, um, on the Guardian um, Street uh, investigation. If you look up Guardian on, on my videos, um, it actually has a little portion of that footage where one of the sources is flying along. Now, this is going into like Mark Three. The SLR barely catches them. Um, one of them, uh, it does a mid-air flip. In two frames, it does a flip. And this is close to the ground. Right. We have nothing in our technology that can even do that. No drone, no, no, no U-2 spy plane. There's nothing that we have that is known in quotations that can do that. Mm. There, there was no sonic boom mm. either, which was another, uh, another aspect to a lot of the UFOs that they travel very fast, but they don't. Um, cause a sonic boom mm. at least most of the time they don't actually before we go any further would you like to tell everybody what your website name is so they can look you up yes you can go to hauntedman.net and on there i have uh linked uh youtube videos and little articles most of the content is uh through youtube however but you can find pictures uh i've even got anomalies out there up trees very strange stuff, and I've gone back. They haven't been there later when I've gone back with a 200-millimeter lens. I'm also a semi-pro photographer, and I have a graphics background as well. I also have worked as uh, a, a student news reporter and photographer, so I do have a slight media background as well. Look, I, this is a mystery to me, and I, I am, I'm hungry like a tiger. I want to know what's going on. It's really interesting for me personally because this has always been a fascination for my entire life, as I told you when we first talked, and I've always wondered personally if there was a connection between Bigfoot sightings and UFO activity because because some Bigfoot sighting accounts that I've read of in the States, there have been reported instances of UFO activity in the region at that time. Yes. Well, uh, uh, that research that I mentioned, Stan Gordon actually um, actually went to investigate over there in Pennsylvania. I think it was 1973. He um, had a team that would go and investigate these very strange Bigfoot slash and UFO encounters. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, no. um, but um, it is interesting when it does. Um, there had been these giant Bigfoot-like creatures seen around UFOs, and they had you know, red eyes and um, they, they made sounds like crying babies almost. And I, I have been in contact with people here in New Zealand who have heard some very strange things. Some of them skeptics, um, as, as you know, as I'm sure you find Marianne doing this research 
on your end that you'll get people that will contact you about things that go on that, that the general public does not know about. Yes. Because many people are just, um, they're afraid to go public. Mm, mm. And a lot of people whose experiences I share on the podcast, a lot of them, actually most of them actually, <laughs> prefer to remain anonymous or alter their voices if they're female, they might sound like a male, you know? because they want to remain private and understandably so, because, you know, it's hard for some people to accept that there might be other realities other than the ones we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch. Well, I'd just like to make a point of that. Um, you know, like when I was over by Skinwalker Ranch, I interviewed a, a man in the community, he didn't want to be named, but he has a, in his profession, he was involved with working with school children. They saw, I think it was February 12th of 2012, there was a major sighting of a saucer that knocked power out in Fort Duchesne there. A group of them had seen the saucer and the children were having big problems uh, over it. This all of a sudden, they see this, what is going on? This is not in a school book. This is not in a textbook. This is beyond our, our understanding. Um, it, it questions people's conditioning, you know? Right. So people have a very hard time are very shaken up over it. You know, some people will, they'll want to find out like what's going on. Other people completely close up and go the other way. And I, I understand that. I respect people, uh, uh, their, um, their mental ability to cope. Yeah, it's really individual, isn't it? And it's really interesting. I didn't quite expect, I didn't quite expect this to go in this direction. But I'm actually interviewing the head of one of New Zealand's UFO organisations shortly. So it's quite interesting. It will, it will sort of tie in with this in a way. So currently you're trying to raise funds to create a documentary about this to create. Uh, do you want to tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, so what I'd like to do is um, go to some of these areas where there have been sightings, and there have been modern sightings, it's just you don't hear about them generally in the media. There's some outlets that might give you a chance to give you a story if you're willing, but uh, uh, I know, like the Herald, is, uh, I know from past experience that the, uh, there's, there is a lot of skepticism. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so what, I'm, what I want to do is um, interview modern witnesses and I want to go and do some um, night investigations. Uh, I, like I had uh, been in contact with a skeptic, someone who was very scientific. He had two companions. He was up Mount Mahoy there um, that has all that history with um, New Zealand's Bigfoot there. And um, they heard a howl um, in the middle of the night around 2 a.m. It terrified all of them. They immediately left the area, went down this mountain, and that's the mountain that, of course, it has all the history to it. Right. Uh, the place of the Pataperehe is the Maori, all the fairy people in the uh, New Zealand's um, Bigfoot, the wild men. Right, right. I think I remember hearing about his uh, that experience. I think it was on Yowie Hunters or something like that when I was researching. Have you had other people come and share their experiences with you? I've, I've had quite a few. Look, most people, um, as you know, do not want to speak openly about it and only right. speak to you in confidence, which gives to me gives more credibility mm. when, well, they've got nothing to gain from mm. talking to you, do they? You yeah. know, it's there's true. no there's no monetary gain, there's no notoriety. In fact, even if you're in the subject, people scornfully look at you and, you know, you can't talk about that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, they do. So, so it's, it's not... It's not about glory or anything. You have to really have a passion for it. 
So that's where we'll end part one of our Moiho Man episode and interview with my guest Mark. Our conversation continues next week along with New Zealand sightings and reports of big cat mysteries that have made New Zealand headlines over the years and in fact continue to do so. It was initially the big cat sightings that prompted me to make these episodes focusing on New Zealand cryptids. This episode was a really learning one for me. This is one of the things that I really love about doing these podcasts is how very much I learn and increase my knowledge when doing my research. There are so many wonderful and unknown things in this world and so much we can learn, experience and enjoy. As that famous quote from Shakespeare goes, there are more things in heaven and earth Horatio than are dreamt about in man's philosophy. Oh my word, I feel like a kid in a candy store. So many delicious treats, subjects for episodes, all tantalisingly within reach, but where to go? Ah, decisions. The question for me is, as always, what would you all find most interesting to listen to? Please, at any time, feel free to email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com with suggestions for subjects you would like me to cover. And if I do not know of them as I did not of our Moiho man, then absolutely, I will research and learn as much as I can to share with you all. And as always, I would love to hear your experiences or your thoughts. The piece of music that I chose to share with you all today is actually one of my favourite Māori waata, or songs, called Ite Ariki. Again, I do not know the singer to be able to name her for you as the music was from the same internet archives as last week. So if any of you know who this woman is, then please let me know so I can give her credit. If you enjoyed these episodes, then please leave a positive rating and a written review on iTunes. Who knows? You may hear your review read out at the end of an episode. So get writing. And of course, so you don't miss out on our next episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting platform. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more the merrier. And please consider supporting this show on Patreon.com. You can check out the link on our website. Check our Facebook page and like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, we'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening.